we're going to spend some time looking at the book of Nahum. And uh, today will be just the introduction, given some of the background, what Major Thomas used to call the donkey work. And, uh, and then we'll, we're going to work our way through the three chapters. There's a lot here. Next week I will be out, um, but the, the following week we'll, we'll jump in, chapter 1, verse 1. Um, some see Nahum as being a, a sequel to the book of Jonah. Uh, you know, we went through Jonah together. Uh, it, was, uh, uh, it was over a year ago, I think, is when we finished it, or right at. And that's actually was the last time that I was uh, here as the, as, the, uh, as the teacher, not filling in for somebody. You know, having five different men teaching this class has turned out to be a real blessing. You know, for 17 years before we had moved to Louisiana, for 17 years I was the, the sole teacher. And that meant every Saturday was very much booked up getting ready for the next Sunday, uh, which was great for me. You know, it, was a, it was a good time of just having to be in the Word and digging and being ready for the next, the next day. Um, I was petrified for most of that because you know, this was not a normal class. There was a lot of, a lot of questions and a lot of, a, a lot of thoughts that went on, and so that was really good for me. Coming back now that we have five different men teaching it, I'll tell you one of the advantages of that is, like I said, I, it's been a while. Uh, it's been almost a year. So that's, if you're not ready to teach, uh, you know, you're, you've been lazy. You know? uh, so it's been really good for me to have to be in prayer, to think through, and to spend so much time looking at three chapters of the Bible. Uh, and I'm, I'm very appreciative of that. There's been a lot that the Lord has been pouring in and working in my heart with this. And so I'm excited to get started, to get into this. And just to see, you know, it sounds funny for somebody that's been studying it for uh, almost a year now. But, you know, to, I'm excited to get into it, see what the Lord's going to do and where He's going to take us. Um, because, you know, these, these prophets... There's a reason why, as teachers, we avoid them. Uh, I mean, my goodness, just how depressing can you be? And the same thing, every chapter of every book. Come on, guys, get over it. You know, it's like, could you come up with something a little encouraging? And, uh, you know, I realize, you know, if God has the same thing to say, with so many men, every line of their books, you know, maybe, maybe we should spend a little bit of time thinking on these things. And so I really appreciate the time the Lord has given me. Let me lead us in prayer and we'll take a look at the outline. Father, we thank you for this time you're giving us to be in the book of Nahum. Mm -hmm. We thank you, Lord, for your patience with us and your clear communication to us through your Son, by your Holy Spirit. We ask, Lord, for your wisdom to listen um, and to respond, that you be honored and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. So, uh, one of the advantages to having so much time to prepare a book is you actually have the opportunity to put an outline together, uh, not as you're going, but as you've worked through it, and then look back at what 
what the Lord's been showing you. If you'd like a copy of this, just let me know and I'd be glad to email it to you or maybe we can make a hard copy here in the office with it. But I have, I've seen it, uh, you know, chapter by chapter broken up this way. First, we see in chapter 1, we see uh, God is in control. And in chapter 2, God intervenes. Chapter 3, God gives his reason for judgment. And the second part of chapter 3, God's response to Nineveh's harlotry and sorceries. And then I have all the subcategories broken down through here. But what I want to do today is really spend some time uh, looking at the background of the book. Basically, an overview or a quick synopsis of the book is that Nahum is, is telling of the coming destruction of the city of Nineveh and the, the kingdom of Assyria that, uh, that actually took place in 612 B.C. It was utterly destroyed, never to be rebuilt again. Uh, you know, some cities, that, even ones that have been restored, there's something else that's been built back on the same site, not this place. Um, the ruins stand, uh, and it's just a reminder of what it once was. It was destroyed by an alliance of the Babylonian Medes and the Scythians, all of them having been under the authority of the Assyrians at one point, and uh, took, uh, came together, took advantage of this one moment in history, and overnight just destroyed the city and the kingdom. Its fall was to be, according to uh, Nahum, and history tells us it happened this way, its fall was to be horrific, just as its conquests had been horrific. And one of those conquests will actually be mentioned in chapter 3 with the city of Noaman, which is a city of Egypt, better known in some circles as Thebes or Thebes. Uh, it's, uh, it was a, a city that was found on both sides of the Nile River, had waterways through it, and they give some, uh, he gives, Nahum gives some description of it in chapter 3 of just how uh, it seemed to be impregnable, but it had been destroyed by the Assyrians. And now uh, Nahum is telling them the same thing is going to happen to them. So we'll take some time and look at that. The city, from the ruins we can tell that the city was impressive even by today's standards. Uh, it was seven and a half miles long, so about 12 kilometers long, just the wall itself, seven and a half miles. Um, in some places, it's been found that the wall was 148 feet wide. Um, that, that's incredible if you just think about this and what it would take to build that. That would be about 45 meters. And then there was also this great unfinished outer rampart that was protected by a moat. I mean, this was a really impressive place. Uh, it, it was probably something that you know people would love to go to and just tour through and see. Yes, sir. It was it was that long. The encompassing of the city was that long. Yeah, right. Yeah, and uh, then also to just add to the the awesomeness of the place is that there was a river, uh, the Karsaw River, actually ran through the middle of the city and it connected with the, uh, the Tigris that would have been on the, on the uh, west side of the city. So this was an impressive looking place. The, the Assyrian nation or the kingdom, is, it's, it started roughly about 3,000 years ago and it stood uh, in, as, as a place of power for 300 years. It, uh, it ended somewhere toward the end of the 7th century B.C., uh, kind of overnight. Um, 
it stretched from uh, what across Asia Minor, from Egypt to the west, uh, to the border of the of Iran and India today in the east, and from what is now Russia in the north to Arabia in the south. So this was an impressive, uh, impressive place, impressive accomplishment. Uh, there was a lot of pride uh, among the, the citizens, and their military might was just over, quite overwhelming. You know, in a lot of ways, it, it kind of, as you, as you read about the history of the place, in a lot of ways, you know, it was ruthless, but in a lot of ways, kind of reminds me of, you know, maybe being a part of a country like ours, where there's this great security that we can draw from, and if not careful, we put our faith in. Uh, to, and and they, they lasted at least 100 years more than us uh, at this point, and you know, we're, we're working on that. Um, so how in the world did such a powerful, impressive place fall apart so quickly? You know, that's, that's baffled historians, uh, you know, just pondering this. But as you read through the book of Nahum, he makes it very clear that God was against them, Period. God was against them, but also in the midst of all this, we see that he was for his people. The cruelty of Assyria has been talked about in this class. I mean, back in, uh, when we were looking at Jonah, that, uh, you know, that it was brought up. And it's, it's well known. I mean, even their own historical records will tell you just how ruthless they were. You know, stories of staking the enemy, you know, after conquering a city or a kingdom or a, a country, they would take the citizens and, and actually tie them to the ground, stake them to the ground, and then peel their skin off of them. You know, it, it was just, it was ruthless. They were, it was a kind of a calculated terrorism to, to utterly, utterly destroy them, to just crush them, you know, physically, mentally, spiritually, just destroy them. And, uh, and so they were known for this. Now, the name Nahum is an interesting name. Um, it means compassion, consolation. It comes from a, uh, from a, a verb, uh, Nahum, Nahum to, which means to be sorry or to comfort. Now, you look at these, uh, you look at the definition of the name, and it's really kind of interesting that, that you know, his name would mean compassion you know, as you read through the book. And I encourage you to do that. Read through the three chapters. It won't take that long. And, and, and remind yourself, this is compassion, that this is God's compassion. Uh, some would find it difficult to find that this book is a compassionate book. It's been pointed out <coughs> that uh, from Tenney, he makes the observ observation that some modern critics take issue with Nahum's theology, saying that such vengeful expression uh, expressions are far from the spirit of the gospel. Uh, so people struggle with this. They, you know, looking through this and really struggle. Compassion? Are you kidding me? I mean, as you read through it, it's very graphic. Very, I mean, he, he's really laying out, God is laying out just what he's going to do to this city. And you think there's compassion there? And then also that this would fall in line with God's presentation of his gospel? How could this all fit together? But, you know, thinking through this, I believe that, you know, perhaps both of the, these struggles, you know, finding compassion and finding the truth of the gospel, we struggle with that, with, with this kind of description, possibly as a result of the a feminist type of 
of, of a prerequisite that our society and now so often the church has come to place on just what a full understanding of compassion and the gospel are. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir here, uh, but it, it's, it's something that I feel like it deserves some time to think about. Um, I went online and I found some interesting comments that people have made on this particular topic. You know, where's the, where's the masculinity within the church nowadays? What's happened? We, there was an article written, uh, I think back in January, uh, by a man named uh, Stephen uh, Barksville, entitled, uh, Real Men Missing. And it was in the Chronicle magazine, an issue of the Chronicle magazine, I think it was back in January. And just some thoughts from there. Over the years, men have refused to step up to the plate and to do the hard tasks that are often associated with masculinity. The, uh, these include holding the line on, a more, on moral issues such as illicit sexuality, profanity, dishonesty, showing true leadership in the family, in the workplace, and in the community. American conservative men are now harvesting the fruits of their passivity. And then I found a young lady named Annie Hollemquist. Hollemquist, yeah, Annie Hollemquist. She uh, was, she isn't now, but she still contributes to, she was the editor of what is called the Intellectual Takeout. It's a website, intellectualtakeout.org. And basically it's, a, it's younger people who uh, just give their thoughts, uh, write articles on, on issues of the day. And so what this young woman has to say about the masculinity uh, is, I found, very interesting. Um, it's, uh, again, it's her, her article was entitled, Real Men Missing. Um, she goes on and she says this, uh, The feminization of society has changed all of us in subtle ways. Most immediately, it has rendered us uh, susceptible to mass hysteria over the COVID pandemic. Hysteria, any politically incorrect doctor will tell you, is a specifically feminine complaint. But hysteria is not limited to women these days. On the contrary, women seem to be among the most level-headed and skeptical of the overblown virus fear-mongering. My point is that the reign of feminine characteristics over societal norms has encouraged men to adopt feminine values and to forego masculine ones. And again, that's from a young woman who's written this. I thought it was safe to hide behind her in that, showing my masculinity. Uh, but I, I appreciate the observation. Um, I've, I have a friend who's gone home to be with the Lord now. He was an older gentleman who was a pastor. And he was really disturbed. He shared with me one time, just really disturbed, just a few years ago, over the, the lack of masculinity in the pulpit. And his description was, just listen to the delivery. And I thought, well, you know, what are you talking about? And so what I did is I went online. It's really easy for us to do research nowadays, you know? I went online and I pulled up sermons from well-known preachers that were maybe 20 years ago, 30, 50 years ago. And that's a really interesting exercise. And I encourage you to do that. 
listen to the delivery. Listen to what they had to say, how they had to say it. And then you compare that to so much of the preaching that we hear today. And it's really quite alarming. You know, I, I, thank, the Lord, I thank the Lord for the kind of preaching that we hear so often here with Charlie. That it's, it, it is masculine. You know, I, talking about Charlie now, uh, I'll do it because he loves it when I do it. Um, <laughs> that, you know, he doesn't. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, Charlie has really, I've never known a man to have a target on his back like Charlie. Just straightforward. I have never met a man to have a target like that. You know, I've known him for over 30 years, and I've watched the attacks that he's had to endure. Simply because he stands on the word. Unwavering, he'll tell you he's not a perfect man, and I'll, I'll, witness, I'll, 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 I'll witness to that. He's not perfect. But, uh, you know, he's been accused of being a male chauvinist on more than one occasion. Uh, let me tell you what I have witnessed over 30 years at his hill. We've had girls come to us from all over the world, and they consistently will tell you, after being there for a year, that they've never been around men like they've been around here. Talking about our students, our guys. Because of what Charlie's setting the pace, has laid out for them, and those of us who have been on staff have walked in lockstep with him under his authority to encourage the men the same way. We've had girls go home and write back, and they just ask us the question, where are the men? You know, after seeing what they have seen at his hill, and they go home, I mean, simple things. I mean, very simple things. Um, <clears throat> I remember one girl, she told me, you know, I went home and I was asked to go out for coffee by this guy and I thought, oh, that, okay, sure. So she went and she said she gets out of the car and walks right into the front door. She said she just smacked right into the front door of the, of the coffee shop. And she was embarrassed and she was thinking, what in the world? I just walked right into a glass door. What? And then she realized because after being at his hill for a year, she was so accustomed to that door being opened before she ever got there. And we've had other things told to us like that, uh, where you know, men were taught to be men, women were taught to be women. Why? Because this was biblical. There's a, there's a masculinity. There's a femininity. Both show the image of God. And I, you know, I, th that's been something incredible to watch over these years. I can, I, I, when I was thinking through this, I thought about my own dad and my father-in-law. You know, things that they would say and that they would do that you just can't find men saying or doing anymore. It was normal to them, but now it's considered insensitive. I mean, there's men in this room today that can give testimony that we have to, you know, we really feel that we have to shut our mouth and hold back a lot. Or we would be accused of being insensitive. Just this last week, I thought it was really interesting, just this last week, <clears throat> came across this post. This young girl in eastern um, Los Angeles posted this. And she described herself as a feminist leftist. And, you know, she looked like one, too. <laughs> you know, it's like, you know, just have to go out of the way to do this, you know. I thought it was really interesting. As far as she had gone to change her appearance, she still couldn't hide the softness of her face and that she was an attractive young woman. And she was, uh, and she was just giddy. 
And she just said, look this up. Just look up uh, uh, California, East L.A. girl uh, loses her femininity. Just type that in, something like that. And the, she posted the video. It's, it's unbelievable. I thought about playing it, but because she's not a believer, some of the things she said just was not profitable. So I wasn't going to play it in our Sunday school class. But basically, this is what she said. She went on a date this weekend with what she calls a bro's bro. Uh, she said, this guy is from Santa Monica. I guess that's really conservative out there. And so she said that, you know, it, it's, she said, just completely different from anybody that I've ever dated. Matter of fact, she says, I date both men and women. Okay? And she said, this was, she said, how it happened, it was a long story. She wasn't going to tell that part, but she said she ended up on a date with him. And she says, y'all. And then she got giddy. And she says, something weird happened. I've never been around anything like this. A bro's bro who insisted on paying for everything and would not bend back, would not let go of that, would not bend on that. And she said that he paid for everything. We went out for our, for our dinner, and he paid for all of it. Then we went out after that, and, and as he was going to the restroom, I thought, okay, now it's my turn to pay. And I started to pull my wallet out, and he turns around, and he looks at me, and he throws his credit card on the table and says, get whatever we want, and walks off. And she said, oh, she did this even. And she says, she goes, guys, I literally felt my femininity, my feminism, not femininity, but my feminism, my modern-day feminism, she said this, I literally felt it melt away. And then she said, maybe it's time for me to give up this leftist stuff. Oh, oh my goodness. It's unbelievable, isn't it? I think perhaps David felt the need to address the same thing. When he was talking to his son and giving him his charge in 1 Kings chapter 2, verses 1 to 3, when he says, As David's time to die drew near, he charged Solomon his son, saying, Now listen, he knows his son, right? And maybe he thinks there's some things his son needs to hear. And I think we can just gloss over that. But he says this, I'm going the way of all the earth. Be strong, therefore, and show yourself a man. Keep the charge of the Lord your God to walk in his ways, to keep his statutes, his commandments, his ordinances, and his testimonies, according to what is written in the law of Moses, that you may succeed in all that you do and wherever you turn. Now, I, I used to teach a class at His Hill called Speaking Methods. Uh, I've told you before about this. It was a class that I would not tell the students was coming. It was always a second semester class. I would never say anything about it out of fear that they would not come back. Uh, and actually, I had several of them tell me that had I known this class was coming, I would not have come back. And basically, it's just a class where we teach them how to get up and how to speak, how to present. And I would give them all these instructions. And one of them was, I, I told them this, said, listen, whatever you do, do not read these long excerpts. Because very few people can do that. Uh, we had a, a speaker years ago, some of you know him, uh, Russell Kelfer. Russell Kelfer could read the phone book to you and you would hear every name, you know. But that's just not normal. But then I also would tell them this, 
that the, these, all these rules I give you, none are an absolute. That there will be times when you find that you're going to need to break these rules. And for me, I'm about to break that rule. I, I came across some things that I, you know, I kept trying to, how, how can I break this down? I said, you know, you're just hurting it by breaking it down. Just read it. So forgive me. I know I'm not a good reader. But there's a, um, there's a ministry called Family Radio. You can find them online. And they had one gentleman, uh, Brent Barnett, who addressed or gave some commentary on this passage. And I thought, you know, it's just going to be better if I just read his words to you. So bear with me. Um, and before I read this, I want to say that really I feel like the problem that we have with masculinity in the church is it, it, we put it on women. We want to say it's women's fault, but it's not. You know, it, it's, it's the weakness of the man that has allowed this to, to, to take place, to, to have a place. And so with that, I, I want to read some of his comments. He says this with this passage. He says, Solomon will show himself a man if he is first strong. This doesn't mean predominantly physically strong, but the meaning is that of an internal strength and fortitude. He's to be resolute in his beliefs, his character, his integrity. He's to be firm as to what he stands for and in carrying out justice. He is, courageous, he is to courageously stand tall in battle, and he is to be courageous when it comes to standing for truth and the laws of God. Part of being a man is to be strong in Christ, recognizing, as Paul did, that we can do all things through Christ who strengthens us, Philippians 4.13. David, who conquered Goliath, was not a man of fear, but of great strength. He was not the biggest or the strongest of men physically, but he had great faith. It was his faith and trust in God that anything was possible which made him strong. His great physical feats were wrought in eternal fortitude based on the strength which God could alone provide, Psalm 18, 29. David wanted Solomon to be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, which would agree with Ephesians 6, 10. This brings us to the second mark of a man, which according to David, David is obedience to the revealed word of God. If a man obeys God's word in terms of how he lives and treats others, he has shown himself to be a man indeed. All Solomon had to do, listen to this, all Solomon had to do was to be strong enough to be obedient enough. Then it would prove that he was man enough. There are many young boys and teens who are far more manly than grown adult men. This is because they stand for righteousness, they act in strength, and they obey God's word. This is manhood to the max. They treat women with honor, they respect their parents, and they are willing to share the gospel among any other things, many other things which require strength. David was young when he conquered Goliath, and the message is that the transition from boyhood to manhood has to do little with age as compared to commitment to the Word of God. There are men who live as boys and there are boys who live as men. The issue isn't much age as it is heart. Marriage doesn't make a man. 
Getting a job doesn't make a man, and having children doesn't make a man, though each of these opportunities gives a man a chance to show himself a man. A man is a man because God has made him male as opposed to female, Genesis 1.27. And a man is all that a man should be if he fears God. A moral single man is no less of a man than a moral married man. And certainly he is not less of a man than an immoral married man. A man who loves his wife as Christ loved the church, Ephesians 5.25. Who trains his children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, Ephesians 6.4. Who does all that he can to provide for his family, 1 Timothy 5.8. And who is himself a man of godliness and character, 2 Timothy 2. May not be considered, he may not be considered a man's man. But he is God's man, being like David, a man after God's own heart, Acts 13.22. The world needs men to be men by showing themselves to be men. Not by the world's standards, but by God's. Biblical manhood is a matter of the heart and is manifested as mature, matured by a commitment and obedience to the Word of God. Real men are men of integrity um, internal strength in Christ and courage, willing to do what is right and to stand for truth at all times and in all circumstances. Again, that's, again, that's Brent Barnett. And I thought it was well said. I thought he covered it all. And so, if we're honest and we spend some time really looking at the words of Nahum, we'll find that there's great compassion in this absolute, resolute destruction from God. There's great compassion, and it agrees with the gospel. God will not tolerate, will not tolerate, though he is patient, and the book talks about that. He will not tolerate what is not true of him. And he will Restore. He will protect those who belong to him. And so should that not be seen in our church. There are key verses found throughout the book. Uh, key verses for me. In chapter 1 and verse 2, a jealous and avenging God is the Lord. The Lord is avenging and wrathful. The Lord takes vengeance on his adversaries, and he reserves wrath for his enemies. Pretty strong, huh? Verse 7, the Lord is good. A stronghold in the day of trouble. And he knows those who take refuge in him. Verse 9, whatever you devise against the Lord. This is one of those verses where you just kind of have to little chuckle a little bit, you know? It's like, well, yeah, just listen to the way it's worded. Whatever you devise against the Lord, he will make a complete end of it. In other words, you may start it, but he's going to finish it. Distress will not rise up twice. Verse 15, behold, on the mountains, the feet of him who brings good news, who announces peace, celebrate your feasts, O Judah, pay your vows, for never again will the wicked one pass through you, 
he is cut off completely. And when we get to this verse, we're going to slow down, look through it, because I think basically what's being described here is the ministry of Christ. In chapter 2, verses 1 and 2, The one who scatters has come up against you. Man the fortress, watch the road, strength, strengthen your back, summon all your strength, for the Lord will restore the splendor of Jacob like the splendor of Israel, even though devastators have devastated them and destroyed their vine branches. Verse 13, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts. I will burn up her chariots in smoke and Uh, A sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the land, and no longer will the voice of your messengers be heard. And in chapter 3, verses 5 and 6, Behold, I am against you, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will lift up your skirt over your face and show to the nations your nakedness and to the kingdoms your disgrace. I will throw filth on you and make you vile and set you up as a spectacle. And then finally, verse 19, there is no relief for your, bro- for your breakdown. Your wound is incurable. All who hear about you will clap their hands over you. For on whom has not, whom has not your evil passed continually? I say that people see the book of Nahum as a, a sequel to Jonah. Uh, that being because both books deal with Nineveh. And at the, at the end of Jonah, we find that the city of Nineveh has repented in chapter 3. And, you know, I, I remember having discussions with some of you uh, coming up after class, going, but wait a minute, they've repented, but God destroyed them. I said, yeah, you know, that's interesting. The destruction came. 150 years later. 150. I've seen anywhere between 110 and 150. And Anderson made comment to this. Past blessing does not guarantee present peace. The people of each generation must seek and serve God for themselves. Um, The importance of walking, present tense, with the Lord is very clear in the message of Nahum or in the oracle or the prophecy of Nahum. No less true today. Some of you have seen this picture before. I've used it. Story of two evangelists, the one on the right, Billy Graham, the one on the left, Charles or Chuck Templeton. And... You know, it's a, it's a familiar story now. Uh, it was made well known to us again by, um, oh, what's his name? Uh, Lee Strobel in his book, Case for Faith. But basically, it's this, these two men were really good friends. They both started out in ministry together. Um, Templeton was actually known to be a better preacher, uh, more, uh, more captivating in his presentation. And he was expected to be of more, for lack of a better word, more significance in the church than Billy Graham. 
I came across an article from uh, 1954, I think it is, that was written, 1953, in American Magazine, that was uh, entitled, Religious Super Salesman. And the article started off like this, from across the Canadian border comes a handsome, athletic, young evangelist with a brand new look, replacing old-fashioned fire and brimstone with, uh, with, with hard-hitting modern salesmanship. He not only converts his audiences, but keeps them converted. His name is Chuck Templeton, and he's boosting church attendance wherever he goes. At the moment, he's preaching to people across the United States and Canada at the rate of about 1.5 million a year, as well as to millions more on television. He converts an average of 150 people a night, and what is something new in modern evangelism of the church, attendance, church attendance shows that they stay converted. He's being booked two years ahead, a situation that the biggest Broadway hit cannot boast, and the demands of his service are ten times greater than can be met. After a recent two-week stay in Evansville, Indiana, for example, accounts showed that Templeton had drawn a total audience or attendance of 91,000 out of a population of 128,000. In a front-page story, the Trenton, New Jersey Times advertiser declared, if you could ask 30,000 people in Trenton what person has done most in the last week to influence their lives, they would quickly give you the name Charles Chuck Templeton. I still wondered, however, if this man might not be just another fiery and, and gifted orator that many an evangelist, like many evangelists before him, flashing across a city but leaving it emotionally and financially exhausted as, as, at their departure. With converts soon backsliding and church members becoming dissatisfied with their regular pastors, I decided to check. And I was startled to learn, for example, that six months after Templeton had conducted a two-week mission in Evansville, Indiana, church attendance was 17% higher in the city than it had been before he'd come. Even the sale of church literature was up 25%. He ended his sermon that evening on a quiet note. He ended it, in fact, on a prayer, prefacing that it, with this remark. No prayer is worthwhile unless half the time is spent in listening. Prayer is a two-way intercommunication system, and God speaks only to those who take the time to be still and spend a few minutes a day in silence listening. And then the article went on to describe testimony of several people, just how the Lord had used him in their lives. And it was really quite encouraging to read these things, just what the Lord had done, how he had changed them through this man's ministry. But then something happened. And again, Strobel covers it in his book, The Case for Faith, where he, he writes this, that Templeton began to doubt God because of pain and evil in the world. No, he declared, no, there cannot be in our world a loving God. Do you, and so, so um, Strobel asked him this question, do you believe Jesus ever lived? And to which he answered, the greatest human being who has ever lived. 
He was a moral genius. An ethical sense was, in an ethical sense, was unique. He was um, intrinsically the wisest person that I've ever encountered in my life or in my readings. His commitment to was total and led to his own death, which was to the detriment of the world. What could one say about him except that he was a form of greatness? I was taken back. You sound like you really care about him, I said. Well, yes, he's the most important thing in my life, came his reply. I, 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 he stuttered, searching for the word, for the right words. I know it may sound strange, but I have to say, I adore him. I wasn't sure how to respond. You say that with some emotion. Templeton replied, well, yes. Everything, I, everything good I know, everything decent I know, everything pure I know, I learned from Jesus. Yes, yes. And tough. Just look at Jesus. He castigated people. He was angry. People don't think of him that way. But they don't read the Bible. He had a righteous anger. He cared for the oppressed and the exploited. There's no question that he had the highest moral standard, the least duplicity, the greatest compassion of any human being in history. There have been many other wonderful people, but Jesus is Jesus. So the world would do well to emulate him, Templeton said. Oh my goodness, yes, I have tried, and try as as far as I can go to act as I have believed he would act. Abruptly, Templeton cut short his thoughts. There was a brief pause, almost as if he was uncertain whether he should continue. Um, But he said slowly, he's the most... He stopped, then he started again. In my view, he declared, Jesus is the most important human being who has ever existed. That's when Templeton uttered the words I never expected to hear from him. And if I may put it this way, he said, his voice began to crack. I miss him. With that, tears flooded his eyes. He turned his head and he looked down, raising his left hand to shield his face from me. His shoulders bobbed as he wept. Past blessing does not guarantee present peace. The people of each generation must seek to serve God for themselves. And we must continue by faith to walk in Christ daily. Galatians 3. 3. Are you so foolish, having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Ephesians 4.1. Therefore, I, the prisoner of the Lord, implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. Then Jesus says in Revelation 2.5, Therefore, remember from where you have fallen and repent. And do the deeds you did at first, or else I am coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. One last story in closing. This is a picture of um, uh, 
uh, oh, what's his name? How about I read the story and we'll come across it. The time was the 19th of May, 1780. The place was Hartford, Connecticut. The day has gone down in, the New England, in New England history as a terrible foretaste of Judgment Day. For at noon the skies turned from blue to gray, and by mid-afternoon had blackened over so densely that in the religious age men fell on their knees and begged for a final blessing before the end came. The Connecticut House of Representatives was in session, and as some men fell down and others clamored for an immediate adjournment, the Speaker of the House, this is the man here, one Colonel Davenport, came to his feet. He silenced them and said these words, The day of judgment is either approaching or it is not. If it is not, there is no cause for adjournment. And if it is, I choose to be found doing my duty. I wish, therefore, that candles may be brought. Now is the time to live by obedient faith in Christ. When my father-in-law was about to die, and you've heard me talk about him before, incredible example of a godly man to me, one who understood that Christ was his life, and demonstrated that. When he was in his last few weeks, I remember Arlene and I were talking with him, and I was taken back, shocked, actually. When Arlene began to tell him how much he meant to her and how much it was hurting to lose him. And then he did something I didn't expect. He got on to her. And I thought, this is insensitive. He cut her off quickly and abruptly. And he says, no, you will not talk like that. And as I've thought about it over the years, I realized what he was telling us. This is not what I've taught you. This is not what I've demonstrated to you. He wasn't telling us that you can't hurt, you can't cry, you can't miss me. But don't you dare put on me what is not mine to have. I am not your source of life. I am not your security for the next day. But Jesus Christ is. Now, be strong and move on. He told us that throughout his life. I've given you examples and I've told you things that, he's, that he would tell me. And in dying, he was a man. And he insisted that we live in what is true, that is found in Christ. I am very thankful for that, and so is Arlene. Now is the time to live by obedient faith in Christ. We're past time, so I'll pray. Father, we thank you for the reminder this morning of your love and your pursuit and your insistence upon your truth and your, uh, your resoluteness in your truth. 
We thank you that you have shown this to us in your son, Jesus, and that you work it in us by your Holy Spirit. And so, Lord, we ask for your wisdom to be the men and be the women that you've created us to be, totally dependent upon you, allowing you to have your way in us, that you be seen, that you be desired, and that you be glorified. Thank you, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen.